We've been studying the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. A couple of weeks ago, we studied the letter to Ephesus. There's a book, too, written to them, the Ephesian Christians, called Ephesians. Last Sunday, we studied letter to Smyrna. It was one of the two of the seven churches that didn't have anything wrong spoken against them, but words of commendation and encouragement. Both Ephesus and Smyrna were great commercial cities. They had like rivers and harbor, and they were very important that way. Ephesus was below Smyrna, about 35 miles. All of them are on the west coast of what is now Turkey. The one we want to talk about today, the third one, is Pergamus. It was further north yet and somewhat to the east. As the crow flies, I think, from Ephesus, maybe 60 miles, something like that. Well, let's see what we find written to the people here in Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2, begin with verse 12. And to the angel in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp sword with two edges. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name, and you have not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. By the way, the word used for dwell here is the word that's usually used for a permanent kind of dwelling. There's another word in Greek which deals with temporary situation like a traveler and a pilgrim type of thing and a foreigner. But this is a word that indicates more permanency. And it's used also of the Christians. These were people who lived in Pergamos and they weren't just passing through. That's where they were and that's basically where they were to stay. Verse 14 But I do have a few things against you. Notice before he mentions the negatives, he gives them some words of positive encouragement. And that's probably a good sequence, a good way to do things. Because you have there them who hold the doctrine or teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling stone a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication or immorality. So also you have them there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, 
I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving him who receives it. Pergamus is a very interesting city. It's the northernmost of all these seven cities. We ascend from the south with Ephesus and Smyrna and then finally up to Pergamus and then we start descending toward the south to the other ones. Now Pergamus had a very special place and going back to the year 133 B.C., we find that there was a dying king of that kingdom of which Pergamus was the capital. And he wanted to be with Rome. Now, Rome had conquered many places, so they became unwilling subjects of Rome. And Rome wished to impose its peace, its Pax Romana, upon the peoples. The king here of Pergamus was the king of the kingdom of Italia. Now that was a kingdom that had broken off after Alexander the Great had died a long time before, one of the kingdoms that he left. And whereas most of the, or many of the places that Rome dominated were unwillingly dominated by Rome, as later Palestine and the Jewish people were, a matter of conquest, we find that the dying king in 133, as I said, B.C., of Pergamum in the Italia kingdom from the kingdoms of Alexander the Great, he willed his kingdom to the Roman Empire. So they were not unwilling subjects. They were subjects who were willing and who chose and wanted to be a part of Rome. So that gave them favor, of course, in the Romans' eyes, gave them an important position. Pergamus was the capital for years of the province of Asia, again in the western part of Turkey the Roman province of Asia. I guess we'd call a lot of that Asia Minor today. At any rate, they had significant appeal to Roman people because they willingly became a part of the empire. We bear that in mind and realize it's a capital city, a very important capital city. Here we are in Sacramento. It's a capital city, too, of the whole state of California. Many times in capital cities, there's sort of a, an air of importance or something. Well, there was in Pergamum. It was considered the most illustrious and famous city of Asia Minor there. One of the things that was important is that they had a great library Back in those days, you know that the books in the library all had to be copied by hand. They couldn't go to the copier and, and run off copies. It was a very laborious, time-consuming 
an expensive thing to do to create a book. Perhaps the most famous library ever was one that was down in Egypt in Alexandria. And in Alexandria, they had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of books. It was kind of preeminent among the libraries. Well, the king of Pergamum wanted the most important library. And so they invited the librarian from Alexandria, that great library, to come and be their librarian. Well, the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, he didn't like that idea, so he put a stop to that by imprisoning their librarian. (laughs) But Egypt wasn't finished with that. They did another thing. They banned the sale of papyrus on whom on which books were written. So they were cutting them off at the knees there. Couldn't get the material to put the books on. But Pergamus didn't surrender with that. Guess what they did? They developed a different writing material, something to write upon. Instead of papyrus, they developed parchment, also called vellum. You write on that, and that's made from animal skins. And actually, that turns out to be better than the papyrus. (laughs) So anyway, they had a very famous, a very important library, and it had over 200,000 books. And imagine that, over 200,000 handwritten books. So it was academic, and they had this wonderful, great library. Another thing about Pergamum is had a lot of temples. They were not as great financially and commercially as Ephesus and Smyrna. They didn't have a strategic location like the other two did. That was very important if you're going to be a big commercial city. Of course, they had their commerce, but they were not strategically located and didn't have the kind of commerce the other two cities did have but they were very religious. They had a lot of temples and shrines. They were known especially for a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. They had their votaries, they had their priests, they had their temple, and they even felt that if people came and stayed overnight in the temple and one of the tame snakes that they had around there brushed against that person, that that was the incarnation of the god of healing, Asclepios, and that person would be healed. Now, as you know, medical symbol even today, you've, you've got a symbol of a snake. Well, the snake was the symbol of Asclepios, the Greek god of healing. That was a very, very important thing for them. In fact, sometimes they they thought of Pergamus as the city of Asclepios. He was so important. It was a little bit of like being the lures of healing for the region, and people would come there thinking that they could thus be healed. But it wasn't just the temple of Asclepios, the god of healing, 
They had a lot of temples. They had a lot of shrines. Now, one of the interesting things is that Pergamus was here inland, and behind it was a conical hill. And that conical hill was dotted with temples and shrines and altars and things like that to the Greek gods. They had one to Athena. You know, the Parthenon in Athens was for Athena, one of the prominent mythological Greek gods. About 800 feet up on this conical hill was where her temple was. But out from there went a ledge. So here it was like 800 feet up where people in the town, when they looked up there, which they could easily do, they could see this ledge. And on that ledge by the temple of Athena was an altar to Zeus, the king of the mythological gods, known to the Romans as Jupiter. And under that altar to Zeus, the head god, was a frieze that was sculpted. And it was a beautiful, well-known sculpted frieze of the Battle of the Giants from Greek mythology. Now, as far as I know, these places still exist, or at least the remnants of them. And so people, as they would be down there in the town of Pergamos, and they'd look up there, 800 feet up, there would be this altar of Zeus with this remarkable sculpted frieze. Now it's interesting here in the passage, it talks about Satan's seat. Actually, a better translation might be Satan's throne. The Greek word is normally translated throne. And when they were down in the town of Pergamus and they looked up there, it would look like a throne, I think. And on that was this altar of Zeus, and close to it was this other temple for Athena. Maybe that's what it means when it talks about the throne of Satan, this false religion, and these false ideas. And it was dominating the scene. Everybody, as it were, could see this, a throne-like situation. Well, having said all that, that gives us a little bit of understanding of the situation in which these people lived to whom this letter was written. Not too much unlike a lot of things in which we live today. The one thing that's a little bit different, we don't have a lot of idols and temples all over the place dedicated to those idols. But what do we learn in Ephesians 5.5? 5? As I mentioned before, we learn that covetousness or greed is really an idol. <laughs> so when you realize that there's an expanded understanding of what idols represent, then we realize that this becomes all the more contemporary and applicable to our lives today. And of course, a lot of people were mixed up. A lot of people had great ideas of their importance in this important capital city, illustrious and famous and well accepted by the Romans. 
Now, having said all that, and realizing there's a lot of similarity with our situation in the world today, let's look at the passage in the letter that's actually written to them. In verse 12, it refers back to the introductory appearance of chapter 1, as we also find in the other letters, referring back to certain situations of the one who appeared to John so gloriously in chapter 1. Notice it says there in verse 12, chapter 2, it's talking about he who has the sharp sword with two edges. And you go back into chapter 1, you find in verse 16, yes, it talks about that one who appeared that had a sharp sword with two edges coming out of his mouth. Well, here in chapter 2, it's not only mentioned in verse 12, but in verse 16, it talks about it again and about fighting against these bad people with that sword. So what's referred to back to the introductory vision is applied in this letter and has a relevance in that respect. As you think about the sword of two edges, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Here's what it says in verse 12. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. There we got it, the two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing apart of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Of course, this represents, doesn't it then, the word of God sharper than a two-edged sword. It's alive and it's powerful. And so here in Revelation, we find this two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And so if he's going to fight against the bad people with that, he's going to use his word, his all-powerful and living word, to fight against them. And as we have God's Bible, we have God's word, don't we? And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can change our lives. It can help get us corrected. It can be an instrument of punishment. It can be an instrument of edification, of upbuilding. It proceeds out of the mouth of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Revelation 2.13. I know your works, words of commendation here. I know your works. He knew the things they'd been doing for him. As he knew theirs, he knows ours. Are we serving the Lord? He knows all about this. I know your works and where you dwell. Again, this is the permanent kind of dwelling. They were living there. They were staying there in this capital, illustrious city. They were staying there where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name. And so in the midst of difficulty, we are too are to hold fast the name of the Lord Jesus, the name of God. We sing about that and we need to live that, do we not, day by day. You hold it fast, you don't let loose of it. And you have not denied my faith, my faith. That's a very significant statement. And so we are called to acknowledge his faith as well, are we not? 
even in the midst of many times difficult situations. What is his faith? Well, it involves who Jesus is, as he appeared in chapter 1, for one thing. He seemed to be Almighty God. God come down. What is his faith? He's the Son of God. He's the one who died on the cross for our sins. He's the one who was bodily, gloriously raised from the dead. He is the one who has promised to come back in power and great glory, which in his time he will do. He's the one who's promised a new body to all Christians. And he's promised a place, a dwelling place that indeed is permanently permanent in heaven in his father's house. Great words of promise. Does God lie? No. But these things are true. And if we believe them and if we live them, we know they will be ours in God's time. And we're here today, I believe, because we believe in Jesus. We're called to trust him and not deny the faith, as it talks about here in this verse. But after it says, you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, he mentions a martyr. We really don't know much, if anything, about the martyr that's mentioned. His name here in verse 13 is Antipas. Antipas. Now, John wrote this probably during the reign of Titus Domitian. Titus was the guy that destroyed the temple in 70 AD, but here he is now, the emperor. And under the reign of Titus Domitian, emperor worship was no longer just voluntary, it became compulsory. It was a law. They thought this would unify the Roman Empire and take the disparate parts and cause them to be more united. And so it was a political thing as well as a religious thing. And under the reign of Domitian, which was 81 to 96 AD, this became compulsory. Before, it was encouraged, but now you're an outlaw if you didn't do it. Now, Pergamum, being the capital city, was very, very much involved with emperor worship. In Smyrna, we learned last Sunday, in the year about 155 AD, there was a famous martyr, a man who'd served the Lord for 86 years. His name was Polycarp. And I read a little bit of what he said as they burned him to death because he refused to give a pinch of incense to the emperor and say, Caesar is Lord. And many, many Christians would die because they would refuse to do that. Jesus was Lord, and they refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and burn incense to him. Well, this man Antipas probably, I think, was a martyr as Caesar worship became compulsory within that time of Titus Domitian. And of course, through the years, there were different times this thing was more enforced. Now in Smyrna, it was one thing. But in Pergamus, the capital city, it was almost everything. It became very, very, very dangerous for a Christian to continue to live in 
Pergamus, sometimes called Pergamum. But here was a man who I believe, because of this, had given his life, named Antipas. Now last Sunday I, I read something, and I'd like to reread it again today, found in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, it talks about martyrs. By the word, the ancient word was simply witness, and it came to mean martyr as well. A witness is a martyr. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them who were slain for the word of God and for the witness which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, O Lord, how long, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them who live on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brothers, who should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. There's a very special place in God's heart for the martyrs. But you know, I got to thinking, in a sense, we're all called to be martyrs. Now, what do I mean? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, if anyone will follow me, let him take up his cross every day, daily, and follow me. Now, what's a cross? That was the instrument of execution. One of the ways they'd execute criminals. If we had, say, execution by Hanging, we'd say, take up your hangman's noose. Or if we had execution by electric chair, it'd be like saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. So what's it really saying? It's saying you need to die to self that you might live for God. That's what it means to take up your cross, and we're to do it every day, to turn our lives over to the Lord to die to self and selfishness and sin that we might live for the Lord. That's what it's all about. And so in a sense, we're all to be martyrs every day <laughs> to live for the Lord in a positive, beautiful sense. Now having said that, let's go back here to verse 13 and highlights again where Satan dwells, where he's rather permanently established, and there were God's people there living there too. But then he mentions something that he has against them. In verse 14, he says, You have there them who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now you can read about Balaam back in Numbers chapter 25 and also chapter 31. But you can read about Balaam earlier, too, in chapters 22, 23, 24 of Numbers. Balaam was the guy whose donkey told him, stopped him, basically, from going doing something he shouldn't have done. Well, he was allowed to go eventually, but he had to only speak what God wanted him to speak. Now, Balak was the capital of the Moabites, and the Moabites and the Midianites got together, and they were afraid of the Israelites, the Jewish people. 
So at any rate, we find God used Balaam back there and said some prophetical, beautiful things. But Balaam had another way then of getting at the people that they wanted to destroy, the Jewish people. So whereas he couldn't curse them, he could encourage them to do things they shouldn't do. So Balaam was there encouraging them to be involved in pagan sacrifice and often involved with that was immorality, fornication. They thought that was a religious thing to do and it would help fertility of crops and what have you. And so though he couldn't get at him one way, now he got at him another way. And you can read about this. It's very interesting, as I said, in chapters 25 and 31 of the book of Numbers. Well, eventually Balaam died because of his sin. And so we find that it's talking about this, his teaching. And what was it? Well, to get the Israelites to worship false gods, to offer sacrifice to these idols and things, and then to be involved in immorality. This is, I think, rather common today as well. You know, God has some standards about fathers and mothers and how we should live. God's standards are that a man and a woman, when they're going to live together like that, need to be married. But what's the custom today? Well, many people do get married. That's great and wonderful. They should. But many, many younger people are not doing, even older people sometimes. They're living together this way as man and woman, but they're not married together as man and woman. That would be classed in the scripture, I believe, as immorality. This is something that has become a burning issue in the last few years, the last few decades, actually, I think, where people think they need to live together, and then eventually maybe they'll become engaged, and maybe a year or two later they'll finally get married and have a big celebration. The Bible way is you make that kind of commitment before you live together this way. You truly commit to one another in a legal way. And there's a responsibility that's accepted in both parties, especially by the men, to take care of the wife and the family. Teaching of Balaam would throw away with that. No, don't worry about those things. Just, just live together and it's fine. And what about this thing of false teaching? Well, that's prevalent today too. Many people don't want to accept Jesus and say he's the only way. And the problem is if they don't accept Jesus, there is no other way because he's the only one who qualified the sinless son of God to die for our sins. So if we bypass him, we bypass God's free offer of salvation. He took our place. We need to trust him. Then going on to verse 15, which kind of flows out of verse 14. So you also have them who have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They hold that teaching, which thing I hate. (laughs) 
Now you see, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 6, this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So God not only hated the teaching, he hated the actions of the Nicolaitans. Now, as with Antipas, about whom we know virtually nothing, it's quite true with the Nicolaitans. We really don't know much about them. But the way it's used here in the context, we gather that they did the same kind of things that Balaam did and taught what he taught, namely immorality and living in a wrong way and worshiping wrongly. And so we find that they are put down. God says, you know, I hate these actions, I hate these teachings. It's also been suggested that really what the Nicolaitans were about is expressed in Jude, the book of Jude right before Revelation, verse 4. It talks about those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness or immorality. Use God's grace as an excuse to do what they want to do. Oh, God will forgive me. It's okay. I'm, I'm secure in his hand. I'm not going to lose my salvation. Now, that part's true if you're really saved. But the other makes it questionable. Are you really saved if you have that attitude? That I can take God's grace, and that means I can just go out and live like I please and go against his commands. So anyway, going back to the passage, what are they told to do? Verse 16, repent, <laughs> one powerful word. Sometimes people think repent just means be sorry about something. Repent means something much greater than that. Repent basically means change. Change your mind, change your life. Positive, good change. One of the things that I've noticed Sometimes in politics, people clamor for change. But I always think, what kind of change? There's bad change as well as good change. So it's the issues that need to be confronted and spelled out. Repent means, in this case, to turn away from the wrong things, such as have been delineated here with the Nicolaitans and with the immorality and the wrong teachings and all this. Change, change your mind, change your life concerning these things. And so wrapped up in the word repentance is a great teaching and a great valuable understanding. Repent, change, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So you see how it talks about that two-edged sword that he introduces this letter by and which he mentions there in chapter 1. And then this wonderful invitation, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. See, God expects us to overcome and not deny the faith. Hold fast that which is true. So live. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows except him who receives it. 
And if I remember rightly, I heard a little bit about a new name in one of the songs there that we heard. And we do appreciate what you do, Gary and, and Kathy. Thank you. But here it talks about this new name. So he promises something to the believing overcomer. But what about this hidden manna? What could that be? Well, I think about the manna that was put into the holy place and perhaps the holy of holies. At one place, it looks like it was even in the Ark of the Covenant, sort of in a hidden special place near to the heart of God. And there's a special fellowship and nourishment that the person who overcomes and lives for God experiences. A wonderful thing, eating of that heavenly food. You might say, well, what's manna? Most of you know, but that's what God provided for the Israelites in the desert for many years. It was like bread and it tasted good to begin with. So we have that spiritual nourishment that fellowship with the Lord. And I will give him a white stone. Now that's interesting too. Sometimes juries would make selections by dropping a white stone or a black stone into something. And then you'd count them. And the one that had the most white stone would be acquitted and the one that had the most black stone would be condemned. Well, we'd be given acquittal. Our sins are paid for. God has promised us these wonderful things, forgiveness and everlasting life. And in the stone, a new name written, a new name written, which nobody knows except he who receives it. That's quite an interesting thought, a very personal thing that you're going to get as a believer, an obedient, overcoming believer, a new name. It'd be very special and personal, as it were, for you. I've thought about this new name different times. I suspect maybe the new name will somehow reflect the kind of person and character that you have been in this life. Have you been faithful and trustworthy? Maybe you'll be called faithful. Maybe you'll be called trustworthy. Have you been a, just your life is overflowing with love and that's what you do, like it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all your things be done with love, maybe your name would be love <laughs> or loving. Well, whatever it is, it'd be beautiful for the individual. and It'd be a very personal kind of thing, a new name written. It's a kind of a solid, permanent, enduring name. So as Christians, we can look forward to that we might wonder if it indeed reflects our character and who we are, what might it be for us? What it might it be for you? <laughs> Interesting to think, to think about. Well, I hope this background of Pergamus and this letter to them will encourage us more and more to hold fast the faith, to change if there are any things in our lives that need changing, and that we might keep the faith and die to self daily and live for Jesus the rest of our lives. May we have a time of dedication and prayer.
Lord, we thank you for these letters. We thank you for this letter. We thank you how it's not just for them, but we believe for us as well. And how it seemed to mention there, it's not just for the one church, but for the other churches too. And so we believe that these things have application and meaning for each one of us, even so many centuries away. We know even though it's been a long time and the way we look at time, we know that you may come at any time. We know that you fulfill your promises. And we see things happening in the world that make us think that maybe your coming is right at hand here. May not be all that long time in the future. But whenever it is, we know we are to trust you and to be living for you and to be ready for you. And we thank you for the promises you give to those who overcome. Help us at this moment to dedicate, rededicate, trust in the Lord Jesus. And now to him who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make us mature in all good works to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen.